Grab your copy of Scripture. Open to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings chapter 17. You'll find that uh, right there on page 410 in the Pew Bible in front of you, way up front in your Bible. 1 Kings 17. And we've uh, I've just had to say goodbye to our Sunday night talks on um, our response to the amazing love of God. I am just uh, overwhelmed with gratitude towards the Lord and just how He uh, ministered to my heart through that and how He prepared us for uh, Luke chapter 15 on Sunday morning. So you are definitely way ahead. Those of you who are here on Sunday nights. So now we're going to spend some time um, looking at the prophet Elijah. And then we'll look at the prophet Elisha uh, in the coming weeks. So maybe five or six weeks. Uh, The reason we're here is uh, partly because I know that as you, many of you, uh, so so many people just have, since the beginning of this year, uh, that I've interacted with uh, either face-to-face or over email or what have you, have just endeavored to read through the Bible this year for the very first time. And if you're one of those people, then you know that's going to cause some problems. It's going to cause some problems for you. But good problems, but problems. And you can always tell somebody who doesn't read the Bible because they're not upset about anything in the Bible or wrestling with anything in the Bible. Or, you know, I mean, if someone comes up and says, hey, what is bugging you about the Scripture? Something should be bugging you or you're not reading it. Tonight, when we get to the end, you'll know what I'm talking about. We'll look at a passage of Scripture that um, if you're reading chronologically, you'll be uh, coming to 1 Kings 17, depending on how different uh, uh, chronological orders are different. But within the next several weeks, uh, you'll be coming to 1 Kings 17 and you'll come to this passage of Scripture. So let me pray and then let's uh, just jump in and start taking this apart and see what the Lord will show us tonight. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray right now that you'll help us not to pass time. Help us not to just uh, be here and uh, endure yet another service, Lord God. May this not just be an, uh, an add-on to this morning or anything else, Lord God, but help us to understand the, the supremacy of Your amazing Word and, God, Your presence here among us and the capacity and ability, Lord, that You have to uh, radically alter our lives in this, in this moment that's before us, God. So I pray that You'll give us an eagerness to... Uh, to feast on the bounty of your word. And Lord God, that you'll use this time for your glory in our lives. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Kings 17, basically it's about 800 B.C. uh, And the prophet Elijah comes on the scene. And what's happening in the world is that the king of Israel is King Ahab. And he is a terrible, terrible king. Uh, he's uh, violent and horrible, but really the biggest problem he has is he he didn't marry well. And so he's married to this wonderful, wonderful lady Jezebel. She's spectacular, which is the reason why uh, you've never met anyone named Jezebel, I don't think, uh, because this isn't the person you'd want to be named after. Um, so Jezebel, when... Uh, King Ahab decides he's going to make this political move 
And basically what happens is just prior to this, he enters into a marriage with one of the daughters of the princes of Tyre and Sidon. And and by doing so, he wants to make this political uh, allegiance. And so he, he does that. Well, when he does that, really the, the whole point of everything that's going on is Ahab and Jezebel want to bring religious pluralism into Israel. They want to bring religious freedom into Israel. They want to make uh, the Israel of then the America of today. And so the first thing Jezebel does is she brings in 400 uh, prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Asherah, which are both uh, nature gods, and puts them on the payroll and sends them out amongst the people of God to start teaching and doing whatever it is that they do and causing all sorts of confusion in Israel. So that's sort of the situation. Meanwhile, they've killed all of the prophets of God except for Elijah. So there he is, the only one sort of in this land of confusion, and he's left to to deal with uh, the mess that ensues. And so let's just begin reading. I really just want to deal with the latter part, but I want to set the stage, so we're going to read through this quickly. Verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite uh, is of the inhabitants of Gilead, he said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, it shall not do or rain these years except at my word. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but you have to understand what an unbelievably uh, dangerous word that is. For him to go before Ahab and declare that it's not going to rain or do, Ahab would just as soon have you beheaded as look at you But God sends His man to go and to declare this and then uh, has him retreat to safety. Verse 2, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith which flows from the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Now, there's some... I mean, you're reading through the Bible, and you come to this, and here's this guy living by a brook, and the ravens are bringing him food. And this isn't new information. To those of you that have been around the Bible for a while, you know this story well. But it is an amazing thing that we ought not take for granted here that God is sending ravens to bring meat to Elijah as he sits by the brook. And it's sort of puzzling because God tells him to declare the drought and then the drought leads to the brook drying up. And so Elijah's probably thinking, hello, what's going on here? I did what you said, uh, but now what? And then verse 8, it gets interesting. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, there was a widow there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it 
and die. Well, that's encouraging. Verse 18, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as I have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me, and afterwards make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. Now, there's a lot going on here. But my goal tonight is not to explain everything that's going on because uh, you all would don't want me to do that. You, you want to get home before 10. I love to do that, but you don't want me to do that, so I'm just going to go on. But here's the thing I want you to see. I want you to see that, that our God consistently does things that we have no explanation for. And I don't mean miraculous things in a sense. I mean, our God is a God of the outsiders. This whole episode in the life of Elijah is bizarre to say the least. Let's just draw a few things out. This God of ours has sent Elijah in a drought. So when he left, he was thirsty across a desert with no water to get to Zarephath. He says there's going to be a widow there. He walks up, sees a widow, asks a widow for water. She, in turn, goes to get him a cup of water, which probably was the very last uh, bit of water that she had. Explains to him that she's about to die. He declares that her, her resources are not going to run dry, that they're just going to keep dipping them out and dipping them out. And as they need, it will be provided. Now, Luke chapter 4 Jesus, this should come up on the screen. Jesus preaches his first sermon, gets to the end of his sermon. Here's what he says. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Do you know what happened immediately after Jesus said that? They tried to kill him. Now why? Why did they try to kill him? Why is that such a sore subject for Jews? Well, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament... Now sometimes Abraham might be referred to as a prophet, so you could contest that. But apart from that, Elijah, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament is in need of salvation. He's in a predicament. He's declared this uh, word to the king, and he is on the run, and there's a famine in the land, and people want to kill him. And God sends His man, His A number one guy, sends him to Sidon, to a pagan land. Wonder where... Jezebel was from. Zarephath, maybe? Yeah. He sends Elijah to the very place Jezebel's from, where they worship false gods. And not only that, 
Not to some pagan land, to some pagan man, but a pagan woman of all things. A widow of all things. The most pathetic, helpless picture you can possibly have. This poor, destitute widow who's on her deathbed. That's who God sends Elijah to for salvation. That's going to be his tool for salvation. Now, what does that tell us about God? See, the tendency here is to look at this and to think about all the things it tells us about Israel. But I think that's a mistake. I think the real insight is in what does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about the nature of God? What does it tell us about how God feels about those who are outside of of uh, the acceptable bounds of religion? What does it tell us about how God feels about those who are different and who make us uncomfortable and who don't have the things we have or do the things we do or speak the language we speak or whatever the case may be? What does it tell us about God's willingness to use people that most people wouldn't even associate with? And yet God chooses this woman. That's why the Jews tried to kill Jesus when he said that. Because this has been bugging them for 800 years. Every time, Elijah's their hero. He's the one, they think Elijah's coming back. They're waiting for Elijah. They, they think he might be the Messiah. And let me tell you what they don't like. They don't like anybody talking about the fact that when he was in need, the person who bailed him out was a poor pagan widow lady from Zarephath. But that's exactly what God did. See, she's a foreigner. She's an outsider. Isn't it true that salvation has always shattered the expectations of religion? Always. Always. Isn't that the conversation we have every year at Christmas time during Advent season? Just the unlikeliness, the unexpectedness, the unbelievableness of God as a baby in a manger, trying to compute all that, figure all that out. I mean, I just, every year when we come to Christmas, I just say, God, please, please don't let, don't let the manger just be a, just a decoration or don't, don't let it be in my heart just something that I look at and go, isn't that sweet? I'm so grateful to God that I'm still amazed by that. I'm just totally blown away that God did that. That everything about Jesus, that when you pick up your Bible and you read the New Testament, everything about Him is, is so countercultural and unbelievable in every way that he is doing everything differently than what we would expect or what people thought that is the nature of salvation and that's not new god's been declaring this great plan but it's just people can't see it and and here again he he gives us a picture of salvation that just shatters The expectations of the religious. Why? Why does God do this? Why? Why? Why does God send Elijah to Zarephath? Because God is and always has been and always will be a God of 
grace. And you see, it won't work any other way for a God of grace. You see, a God of grace is not pursuing people who have merit. It's not pursuing people who, in, who have entitlement. Who's not, you see the picture of the, the second half of Luke 15 here. You, you, you see that a God of grace, of unmerited favor, works in the lives of people who are destitute, who are bankrupt, who are needy, who, who are not puffed up and looking at themselves as deserving of anything. So therefore, please, when you, when you are talking to people and they say things to you like, like I grew up in the church and, and, uh, you know, my parents made me go to church, but you know, once I got old enough to get out of that, man, I got out of it. You know, I turned my back on that. Wasn't, that wasn't for me. Rather than ask the question why and get into this uh, argument about why they ought to be in church, do this. Say, describe for me the God that you left. Because let me tell you what you'll hear you'll hear a response that will ensue a very positive conversation because when they get done talking, you'll say, well, I don't blame you. I wouldn't follow that God either. You see, just ask them. Say, tell me about that God. Oh, that God is, is, uh, that, that God is, is judgmental. That God is legalistic. That God is fill in the blanks. And then you, then you have an opportunity to share with them who God actually is. So in verse 17, Now it happened that after these things, uh, that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick, and the sickness was so serious that there was no breath in him. So we see we've got this, this God who is a God of outsiders, who's a God of grace, who just uses this pagan outside woman, brings Elijah in, uses her as a mechanism to bring salvation into Elijah's life. And then, to really muddy the waters, now her son, small son evidently, is sick and unto death and he dies. So, here's this woman who was on her deathbed, who was just about to cook the last bit of food she had and die. Then Elijah comes into her life, as sure as the Lord your God lives, and he declares all these amazing things, and they start happening. And so they're living off of this limitless bounty that keeps coming out of these containers. And so she sees God working in all of this. And then her son dies again. Well, let's think about her for a second. This is all she has, is this little boy. The reason why I know he's little is because she's holding him in her arms. So he's not big, he's little because she hands him to Elijah. So he's 
small enough to be held. So she's not an old widow. She's a relatively young widow. And she has this son, who, which is the reason she's starving to death, because he's not old enough to go out and work and, and find food and help her out of the mess she's in. So that's why they're both going to die. And so all of her hopes and all of her dreams are all wrapped up. And one day this little boy growing up to be a man and taking care of her and someday being married and then there's grandchildren and all that. And it's gone. Because now, he's dead. To which, I think we ought to say, what are you doing, God? This doesn't make any sense. To which I think we'd be reminded of Isaiah 55, that the Lord said, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways aren't your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, my thoughts are higher than yours. So what... What possible function could this son dying serve? Why? What would God be up to in this? Why allow this to happen? What, what is going on? Verse 18. So then she says to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. So she So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed and then cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? Now, let's just think about this for a second. I know that maybe some of you are thinking in your mind because you know this story and so you're just immediately going straight to the to the flannel board Sunday school answer, and you're just immediately jumping mentally to, well, I know how this story goes, and so therefore this is all just some activity that God's putting them through so that, uh, you know, He can get glory. In other words, you know, it's like Lazarus. He's not going to stay dead, so the fact that, you know, Jesus says these crazy things like, okay, I'll get there. Good, he's dead. You know, we just run right past that because we know the end of the story. But I think that's a mistake. Why doesn't, why doesn't anyone say, God has no right to kill my son in this story? Why, why doesn't, why doesn't this woman begin to declare her anger towards God and say that God, what right would God have to kill my son? Why doesn't Elijah say, what right does God have? In other words, based on their response, the first thing I I see clearly here is the sovereignty of God. And why is that? Because they are not even coming close to questioning the power and authority of God because they've seen this miraculous power in their sustaining of food, right? And so they don't begin to say, well, what right does God have? They see the sovereignty of God. But the problem is, is that she says, well, so this must be punishment. See, she's accepting that God has the right to... She's not declaring she's innocent. She's saying, you've come that my sin, which she's owning, is now 
coming back on me and in punishment, my son is going to die. So she's immediately put all this on Elijah and said, so because now something bad has happened to me, it must be punishment from God. Sound familiar? It should. Because even if you don't say it, that's what you think. That's what we do. That's what our flesh tells us. But here's the, here's the amazing thing now. Catch this. Elijah, I mean, this, is a, this isn't some rookie, okay? This isn't some brand new convert here. This is Elijah, the great prophet of God. He takes the boy upstairs and what does he say? The same thing she said. He said, well, God, are you? Are you killing him because of her sin? He doesn't question God's right to do that or authority to do that, but he asks the same question she asked. He's not sure either. That's interesting to me. Here's a man who knows God in ways. You remember when in in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus mentioned this? He also said there were many, many lepers. But none of them were cleansed except for Naaman. Calling back to the story of Naaman the Syrian, which infuriated the Jews because, again, he was a Syrian commander. In other words, this, these prophets, Elijah and Elisha, they have unbelievable power and authority in the kingdom of God. And he says the same thing, this pagan widow lady says, God, are you... Are you punishing her? Is that why you're, is that why this kid is dead? So here, here's where I think the, the, the push is. If you have a God that conforms to your ideas of how God ought to operate, then I would say that your God has been created in your ideas. You see, if you, if you serve a God that you comprehend, if you serve a God that, that acts in accordance with what you think is acceptable, if you serve a God who does the things that you expect Him to do, then you don't serve my God. That's not the God of this Bible. The God of this Bible astonishes me every time I read it. He does things and I scratch my head and I look at this and I think about it and I pray about it and I study it 14 different ways. And the more I look at it, the more I see and the more he gives me and the more we go. And around. And then when I'm done with every possible way, the next time I come back to it, I see more stuff I never saw the first time. And I'm still saying, God, really? What are you doing here? What is, why, why do you do this? And, and I want you to see that back in verse 12, she made a very key statement when she said, as the Lord your God lives. And I think that's important to, to highlight, to circle, to underline, to make a star next to. In other words, that this sovereign God that has the right to kill her son, if he so chooses because of the sin that she's committed, and she's a pagan, lives. See, he's not 
He's not a totem pole. He hasn't, he's not a carved image. He's not some figment of human imagination. This God is not only sovereign, but he lives. He's a living sovereign God. He's dangerous. He's uncontrollable. He doesn't fit inside of your box. He, he's not somebody that you can just categorize and say, this is, this is what God does. You can't do that. And it bothers people. People come and they, they, then this is what I love. I love when you start reading your Bible, you're going to get bothered. But that's good because every time I have a conversation with somebody who's, you know, trying to sort this out, I love it. I love it. See, because I don't want you to just go, well, I don't know. I mean, I heard a sermon once. Come on. This is an this is an astonishing thing. It's like the the doctrine of astonishment that God will at times do th- certain things that seem to make utterly no sense in my worldview. Just doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense to me that. See, I preached a sermon. Many of you have told me that you love that sermon. You've listened to it over and over and over and over and over about Luke chapter 8, the disciples in the storm. Bugs me. Still bugging me. How long has it been? A year? Still bugging me. What's bugging me about it? Because they were obedient in getting in the boat. Jesus said, get in the boat. We're going across. They get in the boat. They're, they're doing what he says. And now they're in a storm perishing. That bugs me. God, why? Why? I mean, it would make sense to me if he said, don't get in the boat. And then they got in the boat and went in the storm. See, that would, that would fit right in with Tonyology. <laughs> Hebrews 11. Here's a good one. Here's what the Bible says, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me. This is about this amazing, you know, the the amazing faithfulness of God's people. For the, the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who threw... Through faith subdued kingdoms and worked righteousness and obtained promises and stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire and escaped the edge of the sword and out of weakness were made strong and became valiant in battle and turned the flame of armies uh, of the aliens against them and women who received their dead raised to life again. Yes, that's our God. That's the widow from Zarephath. But don't quit reading. Then others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mocking and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins. They're destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. 
Now see, to the Bible, those are all great men and women of faith. To us, we don't like that second list. See, that doesn't fit into our ideas. No. I mean, what do you mean? Others were tortured not accepting deliverance. That's what it says. That they might obtain a better resurrection. You know what that means? That means that Lazarus came forth. But that was just a little appetizer. That was just a precursor. I mean, wow! He came forth, but what did he come forth to? Same old junk he left. But what happened the next time? It was better. So what happens in our story? Verse 21. So Elijah stretched himself out on the child three times and he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he was revived. Now here's the question. Was this little boy suffering because of the sins of his mother? Did that have anything to do with it? How do we know? Well, first of all, I can tell you that the, the, the most obvious reason that the boy didn't die because of the sins of his mother is because her son's death is not sufficient to cleanse her sin. So therefore, that's not right. The New Testament teaching is, is that it's not the man's not blind because of the sin of his parents or someone else, but for the glory of God. But only God can take sin away. Only God's Son can die to take away sin. The Bible says that then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. He didn't hear what Elijah said. It doesn't, it, I mean, he did, but that's not what the Bible says. It clearly indicates that God heard and recognized the voice of a person that he knew. He knew this voice. This wasn't a, a, a new voice. This wasn't a, an unheard voice. This is a voice that he was familiar with. They've spent time together. He recognized this voice. And he responds to the voice that he recognized that's his servant. Now, he knows the whole time what's going on. Of course, he knows what's ahead. He knows that the boy's going to be revived. But the point I'm trying to make here is that Elijah didn't have to respond the way he did. He still would have been a great prophet if the boy would have remained dead. That wouldn't have changed his legacy. He's not a great prophet because the boy was raised from the dead. But you see, he didn't refuse deliverance. In other words, he prays, God hears the voice of one he knows, and God revives the child. And how does he do this? Does he kneel beside the child? Does he put his hand on his forehead? He stretched himself out on the child three times. 
So there's a picture here. There's a picture in 1 Kings 17 of hands stretched out and resurrection. There's a picture of the servant of God stretching out his hands. You remember in the New Testament where Jesus is talking to Peter and he tells him that, listen, here's what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to go places you don't want to go. You're going to be girded by people that you don't want to be girded by. And you're going to be stretched out by people you don't want to be stretched out by. And how did Peter die? Crucifixion. Jesus was telling him exactly how he was going to die. And then Jesus said, follow me. And what did Peter do? Followed him. There's a picture here of resurrection. You see that God raises this child, but there's this stretching out of his servant. And Elijah took the child, the Bible says in verse 23, and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now by this I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. It's interesting to me that it wasn't simply the words of Elijah that convinced the woman that he was a man of God and that the God that he served. It wasn't merely that the, the jar of oil continued to replenish itself, though that would get my attention, but it wasn't that. It wasn't all that she had seen. It wasn't until she saw a picture of the resurrection. It wasn't until resurrection that she recognized That this God, His God, the one that He spoke of was the God. In other words, there had to be a resurrected life. In other words, that you and me as New Testament believers need to not rely on the words of our mouth alone, but also on the resurrection power that we live before people. That those we desire to reach, those we desire to witness to should see our lives as resurrected, that we're no longer the people we used to be, that something has changed, that where there once was death, there now is life. You see, there's a picture of God here that He does things His own way. They're not the way we think they ought to go. They don't, you can't just, you can't just take apart the Bible and just make it all fit together the way you want it to work. It won't work that way. Because in order to do that, you have to ignore all the little details that are in there. You, you have to, you have to ask yourself this question. Now, these are God's people. There is people. I mean, come on. You read Exodus and you go, this God loves these people. Look at what He's doing. Look at what He goes through. Look at His long suffering. And they, they whine and complain and murmur and manna's not good enough and they want meat and so He gives them meat and then while there's quail in their teeth, they're still whining and complaining. But He doesn't kill them. He doesn't blow them up. He suffers with them. He loves them. That, these are, these are His people. And yet he sends Elijah all the way across to enemy territory to this widow. What is it about our God? What lengths does he go to to, to show us 
that He does things His way and that the people that He chooses to use and the people that He chooses to love are not the people, not the people that are next to us, that are comfortable to us, that are like us. It's just not that way. It's just not that way. I mean, how how else do you explain this? So my prayer tonight is that you would see that we serve an amazing God. And He's a... He's a dangerous God. He's an extravagant God. He's an unexplainable in many ways God. He's not a God that you can just just fit into. You know, you can't just take the American dream and shove God into the box and go, wow, now that's going to make it better. You just can't do that. You just can't. You can't take the way that you... Here's the problem. When you take the way that you think things ought to go, you know, at your job and the way you were raised and all these things, and then you bring them into the church, you bring them into your faith, and you want to ram all of your background and all your ideas and all your thoughts, you want to ram those into your faith and sort of say, now this is how it ought to work, you're doomed. But there is one way around it. Don't read your Bible. And it'll never bother you. But if you read it, if you come for the next four or five weeks on Sunday nights, I promise you, I'm going to dig things out of here. You're going to be thinking, what in the world is going on? They're everywhere. Everywhere. For a reason. God wants to amaze us. He wants wants us to, to stand back and to look at Him and to recognize that we, we, he's a God of grace. And, and we have no, we have no claim. We have no authority. We have no, right? I mean, he just, he comes to us in sheer grace. I, I was studying this a couple weeks ago and I just got down on my face before God. I said, God, I'm just, a, I'm a widow. And I'm on my last morsel. And if you don't help me, I'm going to die. That's who I am. And that's who I'm going to be tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. And I said, God, thank you so much. That every time I go to that jar, there's oil. Thank you. I don't deserve this. I don't know anything about this. That I'm the least likely last person. But God, thank you. Thank you for coming to a pagan land. When I was on my last leg. And scooping me up. That's the God we serve. Father, I pray tonight that, Lord, as we consider your word, that, Father, you'd help us to know and to see your goodness and your faithfulness and your amazing might, Lord God, in your word. And, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight, Lord, that that we would we would strive to know you as, Father, we can to recognize that the depths of you, we can invest our lives in, in plumb, plumbing those depths, Lord God. That, that Father, we, we, can, we can dive daily into the, 
the depths of Your Word and we can swim, Father God, down into the deep areas of, of You and Your nature and Your character. And Lord God, yet every day there are multitudes and multitudes of places that are yet untapped. That, Father, you, You're the resource that just boils over in abundance that, God, it just floods our soul like a tidal wave. So, Father, protect this church from a small God, from a simple God, from a God who behaves and conforms to what we think an American God ought to be and do. And, Lord God, help us to walk faithfully and humbly before You, the Lion of Judah, as You lead us across the spans of this earth, Lord God, as You call us to to throw down security, to leave behind our ideas, to go places we never thought we'd go, to minister to people that we once detested, Father, make us the people that You want us to be. We don't know what that looks like. But Father, give us a heart to long for the journey. Thank You. Thank You for Your Word and what it shows us about You. And so now as we come and pray, God, now as we we come and kneel before a sovereign God who has authority and power, and say, Lord, I'm just a widow. I'm on my last morsel of food. But God, thank you that tomorrow there'll be another peace. Father, you're good and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to respond, come pray at the front. I invite you to do so. If, if I can pray for you or... One of the other pastors can pray for you. We'd love to pray for you. Whatever your concern, struggle, just respond as God leads. Knowing that sometimes we don't even know what to pray. God intercedes and hears the call of the heart and says, Father, just help me. Help me. May He recognize our voice tonight. May we be familiar to Him for His glory.